Welcome to the Lightest Tread, the official podcast of Soul and Recork, where we speak to extraordinary and ordinary people doing ordinary and extraordinary things that are good for their bodies, good for the planet, and typify the soul of adventure. I'm your host, Paul Mon Brown, and today my guest is Connor Ryan. Connor is a proud Lakota and passionate skier and storyteller. He was born and raised at the foot of the Rocky Mountains on Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute Territory. He considers these landscapes among his biggest inspirations and closest relatives. The peaks and trails led Connor to find a deeper relationship with himself and nature while providing a cherished space for reconnecting with Lakota culture. As a professional skier and avid trail runner, he uses his athletic endeavors and filmmaking to find common ground and stoke passion for action throughout the outdoor industry. With his voice and practice, Connor has been able to help native communities be better represented in skiing and the outdoors and guided organizations and brands into needed roles in environmental and social justice. As an indigenous storyteller, grounded in a contemporary community of adventure and advocacy, he's able to speak to common threads that bond people to place regardless of their background. I speak to Connor about his award-winning film, Spirit of the Peaks, and how to find a productive, forward-looking notion of responsibilities for brands operating within the outdoor industry and the ski industry in particular. Connor wears a sole performance thin footbed in his ski boots, which he loves for the comfort they provide, as well as the carbon negative impact on the planet. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Listen up, folks. It's time for the lightest trip. We're rolling with Connor Ryan. Hey, Connor. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Stoked to be on with you today, Paul. Uh, where are you based, Connor? Uh, I'm based uh, here in Boulder, Colorado, uh, cool. which is where I was born and raised. Are you guys still getting snow? Um, up high until like last week, we were, we were getting it, and I think we're we're probably pretty much done uh, at this point. But yeah, I think the last powder day was like May seventh or something like that sixth so yeah it's pretty good season it's been a been a crazy protracted season here as well yeah we had like a really strong finish to the winter after like it was like spring from january to february very mm. very global weirding kind of winter, <laughs> global weirding yeah indeed. yeah it was at least nice to like finish off on a strong note for a little bit for sure i uh just got my AST one, bought a bought a split board at last. Um, so I'm stoked for next season. I'm already already to get out in the backcountry next season. Uh, nice. Are you dreaming of lines when you look up at the mountains? Always. Nice. Always. That's awesome. I love seeing more people get get empowered to get into the backcountry. It's a beautiful thing. Hmm. Which is something that I actually wanted to. It was something I wanted to ask you in relation to Spirit of the Peaks uh your movie which i've watched a couple of times and really enjoyed by the way i'll start off by saying um i think it was a fantastic project and a, and a fantastic and awesome an awesome perspective yeah and i mean just super well made you guys nailed it like everything about it is is cool it's a, it's the skiing's cool the snow's beautiful the the message is is awesome and easy to relate to and yeah i think uh it's a highly recommended uh watch um so i want to talk quite a bit about spirit of the peaks uh and start off with kind of where you start in in the film which is talking about this almost heavy weight of responsibility that you feel um as a lakota skier um and your relation to the mountains uh and it strikes me that for the vast majority of people who go skiing or snowboarding it's an exercise in leaving responsibility behind mm, yeah. and this experience you seem to you you portray the experience at least to a certain point um, as being almost the opposite to you. Obviously, you enjoy it very much, but it, it carries a specific kind of weight for you. And I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of insight into that that heaviness and and that weight, um, and a bit of an explanation of that. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think for me, uh, because skiing is the thing that really gave me my like most kind of irresistible relationship to nature, if you will, uh, that, that relationship where like, if it snowed and it was a powder day, like I had to go, like it was the, the highest priority on my list. Um, and, and I'd never had something to like pull me outside in that way before. Um, and you know, I grew up in the city and in the suburbs, um, and, and as a native person, person, like my, my culture is all about nature, but, and our connection to that and, and being immersed in understanding that. Um, but I didn't have something to immerse me in nature until I skied. Um, and so I think because of that, uh, I, I saw a potential in skiing that I think like a lot of other people maybe didn't see because it was the thing that, that connected me to my own culture. And as a native person, like there's, there's a journey that we have to go through because of, you know, the act of colonization and the education system and all those things. Like there's this act of having to like re-educate yourself on your own personal tribal history. Um, and for me that, that coincided with learning about my culture um, and at the same time that I was doing both of those things, I'm falling more and more in love each season with skiing. Um, and so for me, they were kind of three things that were, that were braided together. Um, and so then when I would go ski in these places, um, my tribe's kind of traditional territory ends at the foot of the mountains. Uh, so when I would go up to ski, I was on somebody else's homeland and, and being in that process of like learning my culture and history made me realize that wherever I went, there was somebody else's culture and history tied to this place. Um, and so I think like there, there's some amount of me knowing that like as heavy and as emotional as, as my journey with nature and with skiing could be at times because of what I was processing historically, uh, that, that, that had to be true for other people even more so in, in these other places. And, and so for me, it kind of sparked this feeling of, of obligation. Like there's, there's a lot more I need to do for other native folks who aren't being represented, uh, in these spaces in the mountains. And, you know, you go and ski, to all these ski towns that are absolutely gorgeous and, and skiers aren't unique in finding these places gorgeous. And so, you know, like there's people and in, in this case, particularly Ute people who miss living in these places that they've been displaced from so that now they, you know, can be, be ski towns. And so for me, I couldn't just like be there in a fun, light way. I, I had to do something about knowing that. Hmm. And is that doing that doing something? Is it um, is it a day to day practice and an exercise of connecting spiritually to the mountains while you're out there? Is it uh, you know the making of Spirit of the Peaks itself uh, as a sort of broader recognition? Is it a combination of those things? Yeah, I think it's a lot of those things, and that that's something that I kind of wanted to show in Spirit of the Peaks is like it, it's not like there's no one definitive action um that makes things right um because the wrong that we're trying to correct is kind of being out of a mutually beneficial relationship with nature um and, and in a lot of ways indigenous people have done that for a lot of years in the ways that we've you know used fire practices to to mitigate larger fires and move herds of game or um whatever it might be like there's so many practices ecologically that connect people to place um and for the people who came before us on these lands those were a daily activity and so i think for us it is like it's a daily activity it's like there's so many ways um 
that that can show up for any individual person you know like in the film we talked to Lorelai who's a tribal councilwoman um and there's a ton that she has to do to advocate for her tribe to even have access to to clean drinking water where they live um mm. and then we talked to uh, Teal, who's a local environmental activist who's on the board of the people managing the cleanup of this, you know, massive mine spill that happened in the mountains there. And so maybe it's that you find a role in your community like that, where you show up and you run for office or you get on the board of some committee and you, you get involved that way. Or maybe it's, you know, just making all these collective choices that you know in your life are greener, right? Like you switch to putting the cork insoles in, in your ski boots, right? It's like, but it, I, I think it's that attitude of understanding like how the places we love are constantly all connected to our decision-making um, and, and just bringing some awareness to that. And so for me, making Spirit of the Peaks was, was, was a part of that, right? It was to be like, okay, like I'm a skier and what I want to do is make a, a ski film, Right. And like, I have this platform being an athlete. And so how can I use this platform to serve something more than just like, Oh, here's how cool I am. <laughs> um, which I think happens a lot in the, in our sport. And like, that's a great thing. There's a lot of cool people in our sport, but I think that's, that's for me, what a lot of it was, was like, I wanted to tell a story that shows a lot of these historical points that are never shared that I think are relevant to everybody. Um, and at the same time, I want to start setting that as a trend of like, you're, you can make a ski film at the utmost highest quality, right? Like we've won best cinematography at, at two film festivals already. It's like a film that I'm very visually proud of. Um, mm. and, and I think ski films have been visually beautiful for a long time. Mm. Um, but then like at the same time, that film can have a ton of soul to it. And like, let's start setting that as a precedent that like you can have top tier writing, beautiful cinematography and a soulful, important story all at once in a ski film. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's like it's just it's kind of all about that general attitude of like whatever you're going to do, do it with a purpose, do it for a reason, do it for something bigger than just your own fulfillment. And I think you'll end up coming back with with more than, you know, what, what you would have done in just trying to fill your own cup. And I think that's like a community lesson that, that needs a revival in these times is like, it, it feels better when we do these things together and together can also include like the landscape and the environment that we care for and love. For sure. So I, uh, it struck me, and I mean, I mentioned the AST and the backcountry thing and uh, speaking to uh, the beautiful cinematography in Spirit of the Peaks and it seems like a good opportunity to um, go straight there. And my idea, my thought when I was watching uh, the movie was uh, there were a couple of things that stood out. And one of them was the, the glaring lack of uh, snowmobiles and helicopters. Uh, yeah. It's all you. It's all yeah. uh, quote-unquote human-powered skinning up skiing down, uh, earning your turns. Um, and it's something that I've given quite a bit of thought to is, is the extent to which when we go skiing and snowboarding, we do connect to the natural world and to the hydrological cycle in this, this particular way that you describe really beautifully, I think, of you see your, you can look at the turn that you've made in the snow and see that you've touched that water that will then go on to feed life um, in so many other places and other ways. But at the same time, it's a process which is for the vast majority of people sort of purely recreational and maybe doesn't have as much of a considered aspect uh, as it might. Um, for a lot of people, it is. A lot of people, it does can feel like a, a sort of semi-spiritual experience. Um, but for a lot of people, it's just like, okay, I'm going to go make some turns. And I was thinking about it in the context of, of um, the backcountry and, and the amount of um, 
preparation it takes and consideration it takes. You know, it's one thing to hop on a chairlift, go to the top, ski patrol is blasted, you know you're safe. You don't have to think about the dynamics of what's actually happening happening in that snowpack. What's what are my effects on the the snowpack if I decide to ride the slope? Is it stable enough for me? What would that like what would the effects of that slope be on my immediate safety in return, you know? Um, so I was wondering if you thought that growing backcountry as a discipline could could help drive the sports because it has exploded. Uh, you know, I'm one of the one of the guilty parties taking out taking up more freshies in in the backcountry in years to come. Um, but since COVID in particular, it's exploded as as an area of interest and a discipline. Mm-hmm. And so this is all a very long winded way of asking the simple question of: Do you think that more people in the backcountry is good for people having more of a considered connection? to the snow and the water and the place and their impacts on that place and that place's impacts on on life in general? Um, or do you think it risks having more impacts on the backcountry, which is could be seen as as a negative thing? Yeah, I think it's like it's one of those things where it's it's kind of all about like how we choose to be in that space. Um, but I think for the most part, like this space also commands respect. Mm. Um, and I think that brings you more quickly into balance with a place um, and, and makes you want to respect it in more ways, right? Like there's this natural, like, unless you're crazy and you have a death wish, like you're going to step out there and be like, okay, I need to respect what an avalanche could do on this particular slope where I'm standing, like, am I safe here? Is my party safe? Like, how do we move about? And it just starts bringing about this, like really like thoughtful and considerate way of thinking that I think is like good patterning for the rest of how we interact with nature. And it is something that I see carry over a lot uh, when I go for a hike with someone else who's also a backcountry skier, there's just a different level of thought that's been sparked by their previous experiences in the mountains. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of it is because like an avalanche is not only like this powerful destructive force, it's also like this powerful life force. Um, in that like that's that's a lot of water and these hydrological actions are what have like shaped the mountains right like you can look at a mountain in the summertime and be like oh that's where the avalanches run right and i think even just having like because it is such a powerful and incredible thing to to witness an avalanche and hopefully not witness it <laughs> too close or too personally right <laughs> um but because that is so powerful, like, I think it's exciting and it makes us have that first, I don't know, like page turning kind of energy uh, with our first learning about the hydrological cycles that we are like really closely a part of. And it makes you see for the first time, like, oh, wow, like this is a force that shapes a mountain. Uh, and here's why I don't want to personally get caught in it. And like to have those kind of like macro to micro uh kind of realizations of like oh this is huge and also i could be caught in it is a really important thing for i think for people to like start removing that kind of separation that i think we have mentally a lot of times coming from just the way most of us are educated to see science and biology um and in order to kind of just give us that that ability to reclaim the idea of like that's nature, but like I am also nature as a human being. Nature isn't something that's like far away and out the door. Like I myself can be the trigger for an avalanche that shapes the side of a mountain. Like, right? And you can go out there and you can see the tracks of an animal and be like, dang, this animal could have also been the trigger for this avalanche. Like, that's something that happened to us while we were making the film is uh, 
skinning up this ridgeline with Cody Townsend while we were filming. And we found these lynx tracks. And where we decided to put our skin track just lined up perfectly with how the lynx was moving through the mountains. And it made you realize, like, okay, like, this lynx has his AST1 or 2, right? He has, <laughs> he's taking his airy courses, like, you know what I mean? Like, he, there's some inherent avalanche knowledge of him being a part of nature. And us relearning this and, and having the ability to step out into this space is probably something that the Utes were also really considered of before we were here in this space as skiers. And, and so I think like learning to like kind of bridge that world between that indigenous worldview where it's like, you know, I have a lot to say about nature as a Lakota person, but like we don't have a word for nature in Lakota Yapi, like our language, right? Because like it wasn't something you could ever go into or leave mm. at, at that point. And so I think like we put these four walls around us uh, to make us think that we're not in nature sometimes. And I think like being really closely tied and feeling the, the vastness and the power of what's out there in the mountains is something to help us take down those four walls inside our own mind that say, I'm not nature. Cause it's like, you, you go out there and you're, you're a trigger for an avalanche, the same as a, as a gust of wind or the footstep of a mountain goat or whatever it might be. And I think that's, that's humbling and it's grounding and it, it's something we all kind of need more of. I love that. Um, that's a really interesting thought in relation to not having a word for nature and the way that nature is sort of in modern or I guess stemming from mainly Western society is is constructed as this thing that you keep out uh, or you go into, as you say. And when you learn about it, for the most part, for most people, you learn about it in a book on a page and it's like a you know it's a diagram of like the clouds and the rain and the snow and then the trees and the uh and so you can know it in your head but until you are are there and a part of it and and experiencing it and witnessing it um it doesn't hold quite the same uh value or or uh, meaning to you that's part of what we're about as well you know is um we we're all about when I say we I mean I'm referring specifically to soul, not uh, humans. Um, but we're about trying to. We really believe that the more you can get people out into the natural world, the more inherently people will have an interest in in protecting the natural world. So there's a moment then, uh, relatively early on in the film, in which you refer um to sort of a turning point um, in which you turn to traditional uh practice lakota practice ceremonies um and you refer to a traditional lakota vision quest um and i wonder if if uh if it's not an inappropriate question i'd be i'd be i'd be fascinated fascinated to hear a little bit more about what that is and what that involves yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, for me, it was like kind of a natural uh, step in relearning my culture. We have, you know, uh, Hamblecha, which is like a traditional vision quest kind of practice. And um, it consists of, you know, fasting from, from food or water for a number of days and just going out there and really having an experience where you learn to... I don't know, reach those like low points in yourself um, and, and use them as a, as a catalyst for understanding yourself and understanding your role within your community. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, it's something that we're kind of like missing at large um, in, in the world culturally right now, because it's, it's something that traditionally um, would have been a coming of age ceremony. It's also used by, by, medicine or men or people trying to have a prayer answered or whatever it is throughout the rest of life as well. But, but for young men, that would have been our, one of our first practices. Um, and you go out there and you go without food and water for, for a number of days. And, um, the reason why you do that in, in a lot of senses is so that you as in that 
role as a, as a man realize the, the value of food and water and, and what you should sacrifice to make sure that the rest of your community never has to go without food and water. Um, really simple things like that. But I think like if everybody did that, uh, we wouldn't be living in a world where people are trying to put oil pipelines through rivers <laughs> and, you know, doing offshore drilling where, where the sea life is and the humans, you know, are surfing or fishing or interacting with that sea life or whatever. Um, and, and so I think it's just like a, a really good way to kind of align people early on in life with like, these are the most simple facts of life. Um, you need food, you need water to survive. It sucks a lot to go without it, but here's what it feels like for a few days. So that if it does happen to you, you're, you're familiar with those feelings, you know how to push through them. And, um, also just that, that ability of like learning to suffer. I think that's something that people get, get a taste of or a feeling of, uh, in, in the outdoor sports world that's like a really common term right we were on a suffer fest it was some big journey and i think like that's a cool thing and i think like this is kind of a foray into doing that in the non-elective sense um right like you don't just choose it um but but learning to like feel what that feels like uh i think is something that that kind of brings community together to understand like, oh, this is something you've had a hard time. I've had a hard time that makes each of us a little humbler and more, more able to connect with one another. So yeah, that was something that something I chose to do and something that, that put me more, more squarely on my journey of knowing like, okay, like there's a way that I can use what I do as, as a skier to benefit my community. And that was, um, you know, a question that I struggled with as a long time uh, skiing can be seen as, and can feel like a selfish pursuit. And for me, uh, doing those, those Hamblecha, those vision quest ceremonies was, was a big part of understanding like, Oh, okay, here's how I can use my voice and my platform as a skier, uh, to, to benefit the community in a much larger way. Hmm. Amazing. It's, uh, it strikes me that that's, um, sort of lack of, of food or that fasting thing is a, is a common, um, it's common to a, a large number of spiritual practices or religious practices, um, throughout the world. There's got to be something there. You know, there's in Christianity, there's the story of Jesus goes into the deserts and he doesn't have any food or water. And so you, you recognize, uh, Lent, uh, every year around, um, Easter, um, in South Africa, I'm South African. I grew up in, in South Africa. In South Africa, the, the Kosa tribe has um, the initi- initiation ceremony where young men um, go as they're entering manhood. They, well, starts off with a circumcision ceremony, which is quite intense. But then they go off and the young men live in the bush by themselves. And a certain amount of that has to do with healing and there's a certain amount of deprivation of food and water and then they they come back and they've uh sort of similarly so um yeah it's interesting to me just that that universal sort of theme of you have to experience deprivation in order to to understand the value of things Um, yeah i think so i think that's a big a big thing like sometimes i think about these people you know like uh doing whatever environmental nonsense that they're up to and you're like oh, i think if we made you go a few days without uh, any food or water you'd probably change your perspective pretty quick on, on doing something that jeopardizes someone else's food and water in order to have oil um hmm. it's like yeah it's cool to drive a car that's really convenient but it's a lot less convenient to be on your third day without water that's worse and that's what it comes down to is that so much of it's again this the thing of well the nature's the nature's outside of the four walls of my air-conditioned car that i that i enjoy you know and obviously we're not bashing on driving cars necessarily but there's a certain amount of removal you know of, of um removal from the basic truths and necessities of the way that the world works and the way that we as human society must 
you know, the things we need in order to continue to, th- to thrive. Absolutely. And our different definition of what that thriving is. Totally. Um, yeah, because I think that's that's maybe one of the things that's separated us so much now in this time is like, for somebody, it would really be suffering, right, to go a few days without the car. Hmm. And there's somebody else who's never had a car for a day in their life. And hmm. could, you know couldn't care less if there was gasoline to put in that non-existent car right mm-hmm. but the thing those two people have in common is they, they both drink water they both eat food like and that mm-hmm. is much more of a ingredient to to a happy life um for all human beings than it is to have phones or cars or even go skiing you know so i think those those things are really important for us to remember and hold sacred of like you know what's sacred isn't necessarily something that's uh some like magical mysterious spiritual power right so what's sacred is like what's essential to life um and i think that's a big part of what we try to convey in in spirit of the peaks like especially through imagery but those are also like the closing thoughts of the whole film is like we protected these places because they're sacred and to us sacred meant essential to life so, you know, if you're in, if you're a skier now and you think skiing is essential to your life, if you think drinking water is essential to your life, then like join us in, in standing up for these places. And I think that's like, I don't know, in, in a time filled with a lot of different divisive messages, I, I like being able to have a, a message like that, that I'm like, who can't get behind that, right? Like, totally. Yeah. It's uh you say if you think skiing is essential to your life and it seems like a slightly tongue in cheek thing to say because it's of of course not essential to anybody's life but I moved to Canada in order to be able to snowboard, right? So I've I've shaped my life entirely uh, uh in order to be able to chase this thing which I have a passion/addiction to. Um right. And, and that's, that's a magical thing. Like that's so much of what I wanted to be able to tap into with this film was like, I don't know a lot of other sports where people do that. Mm. And I think that's a powerful ingredient of what makes this, this community. And people will shape their, their lives and their lifestyle and where they live and how they live and what work they do uh, all around their ability to go skiing. Yeah. One thing that stands out about that idea for me is that, you know, we've been speaking about skiing and snowboarding as this tool for connecting to to the natural world. And um, I think that it has a particularly, uh, it becomes a particularly powerful tool when you, when you can quantify the risk uh, that faces skiing and the ski industry the way that an organization like protect our winters has done um where they speak about the the um the shortening of winters and the reduction in the amount of snowfall over the last couple of decades um and the outlook for the next you know that within i'm not going to say any hard statistics here without having them at at my fingertips but within the next 80 years in a large portion of north america the ski industry will be really threatened like there just isn't going to be enough snow left and that to me is a particularly uh tangible uh concern in terms of it's it really is time to to start looking for better ways and start implementing better ways that we can live as human beings that resonates with us as a company. Obviously um, we're all about trying to find more sustainable ways of, of doing the things that we love. Speaking of which you say in the film, the ski industry and the outdoor industry needs to reconcile with the fact that this whole industry happens on native land. They are places that have been deeply related to indigenous people for so long. There's no blame in that statement but there is responsibility on the other side. And I think that part of the problem in sort of global discourse, or not global discourse, but in in relation to speaking around difficult issues or issues that feel um, affronting 
to, to people or confronting to people is that people are very prone to defensiveness, um, especially when it comes to the facts of, of, well, I'm not responsible for what has happened in the past. Um, and I think I really like the way that you articulated that of saying like, it's, we're not talking about blame here. We're not saying the ski industry is responsible for uh, native people being forcibly driven off their land. But we are saying that there's a, a certain responsibility looking forward that that you have to take into account. And I think that's a crucial distinction that people don't make often enough. We use the word responsibility, but we don't think about explicitly enough the fact that responsibility can mean you can be responsible for something in a backward-looking way, and you can be responsible. You can have a forward-looking responsibility, a responsibility to something, and in certain instances, um, it might be both, right? So, say you have kids, you're responsible for creating those children, and you have a responsibility to care for those children. Uh, moving forward. So there might be certain instances where you're just responsible for something, which is uh, just as obvious. You know, you do something, cause an effect, you cause something to happen. But you can still have a responsibility looking forward without having caused the set of circumstances which lead to that uh, responsibility. And so one, th one thing that I think helps is if people use like a thought experiment to say, okay, uh, you're at a public pool, you're, at, you're walking past the shallow end of the pool, uh, and there's a child in the pool who's panicking and starting to drown, right? You didn't, it's not your child, you didn't push the kid in the pool, you're not responsible for the signage around the pool, you're not responsible, it's like not your fault that the kid can't swim, but most people would say that under the set of circumstances, you have a responsibility to do something because you're right there. You're also enjoying the pool. You know, the pool right. is the pool is there for your benefit. You know, you like get in and help and, and help and help the, the kid, right? Or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um I think that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I think uh that's just a thought that's that's been in in my mind, and this is something that, yeah. on a personal level, I've grappled with a lot as as a white South African. You know, growing up in mm -hmm. South Africa and post post apartheid, deeply racially divided uh, circumstances. Um, you know, and and a lot of people will very immediately get very defensive around their role and and the fact that they haven't caused these things. Yeah. Um, so in short, I like the way that you pointed out that it's not about blame, but it's about recognizing responsibility moving forward. My question is like, is there a practical, uh, piece of advice or, or practical sort of action item you could call it for brands in the outdoor industry, uh, for exercising that responsibility or in the key in the key, the ski industry? In particular, uh, is there is there something tangible that you can suggest that 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 ski industry brands should be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's kind of a couple of different sides to it. Um, so I think like in some of the most like basic, simple practice sort of things is like circular. I don't, I don't know what you would call it. Circularity within like a supply chain is a huge thing. Um, and it's one of the simplest things that to me is like an indigenous lesson lesson. And I know of the ways that it's indigenous to like my people's specific knowledge, but I think it's one of those things that's a valuable reminder that like we were all indigenous to somewhere once. Right. And however indigenous people lived almost anywhere they were, they lived in a circular model with nature right? Like whatever resources you have to make things out of came from the land and returned to the land. Hmm. And it's a really simple thing that I think like there needs to be a lot more of that of like, if you're creating a something that doesn't have a way to break down, 
in a natural cycle, then you need to be creating the programs to continue the longevity of use of whatever that thing is. And if you can't do that, then switch to a natural material to make it out of. And that's like something I wrestle with a lot of times is like, man, it's weird to go out and have your connection in nature and do all these things. And you do it in a salt in, in a suit that's basically made of petroleum. Mm. Like that's kind of a strange feeling. And so, yeah, it's a little better when that petroleum suit is actually recycled plastic water bottles. And you know that like the, uh, you know, waterproof coating on it wasn't harmful to the environment, wherever it was put on, like things like that. Like, that's huge. Um, I think Soul does a great job of these sort of things where it's like you have a product that's a natural material and it's recycled and it comes in zero waste packaging. Like, I think that way of thinking is like really important thing to, to build on and is an indigenous theme from anywhere. You're not appropriating it. Like just implement that wherever you're at. Right. And that's a, a really simple thing. And I think from more of like a cultural historical legacy standpoint um one of the most important things is just like how are we telling the stories right because Mm -hmm. like that's so much of what motivates us in getting into these adventures um and it creates the conditions in which we kind of like cross-pollinate ideas about how to be in these beautiful natural landscapes right um but i think like there's a huge myth that tends to exist especially in the united states and canada which is like oh we're going out into these wild quote-unquote spaces um these wilderness areas well like the definition of wilderness by the u.s government um includes this phrase untrammeled by man which essentially suggests that like a wilderness area is a place where no people have ever been. Hmm. And I think like getting rid of that idea is a really important thing to understand. And and one of the great like kind of dichotomies of this that we saw in, in making this film is the wilderness area right next to where we're filming. And it's pictured in a lot of the film, but we can't go film there even as indigenous people in a wilderness area. Um, So it's just pictured in the distance. Um, But that wilderness area is named after the tribe. It's the Weminuch wilderness, which is a band of Ute people. Hmm. And so it's like the, the irony in saying like, this is a place untrammeled by man (laughs) named after the tribe that lived here is just ridiculous. And so I think a lot of it is like rephrasing it of like, we're not these brave adventurers going where no man should go mm. or has been before or whatever. Like we're people exactly where we belong to be, which <laughs> is out here amongst all these things. And, and I would tell you as a skier that the first way that I would learn how to go ski in some new place where I haven't skied before is I'm going to ask the people who have skied there before me. And so then if we're going to try to live on this continent in these specific climates and ecosystems, the people we should be asking about how to live there are the people who've lived there for thousands of years. Um, And so I think it's like really that simple of like remembering and however we portray these places in nature that like, these are the homes of indigenous people. We're not like the first ones as skiers to come here and love these mountains. Like somebody else has, all their stories of all their own epics and adventures and all those things and and thousands of years of cumulative knowledge on how to live in a place and and understand what being in balance with that ecosystem means. Um, and, And that produces like a lot of cultural values that I think like people in the outdoor industry and people having these adventures would really resonate with. But what we need is like for that information to even be available for those mm. stories to even be told. And, and it's crazy to me, like as an indigenous person that like there's been all these ski films and climbing films and mountain biking films and trail running films that have come before the story that I've told. And for the most part, the vast majority of them have told a story in such a way that ignores 
that there were people there before this short glimpse of a window of time that somebody skied or ran or climbed there. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of the biggest things we can do is like, we, we live in these like two divided stories. And what I think that does is like it dehumanizes the indigenous story that came before. Right. If we're like, Oh, the story of people being here starts with, when they made the ski town and built the ski hill and everybody moved in. And it was like, that's not the story. And so long as we look at ourselves as skiers as like, that's when our story starts, then we're cutting ourselves off from like thousands of years of valuable human information about how to live in a place. And I think it's an important thing for people to understand that like, that's what ingrained white supremacy in a system is is to say, oh, we're going to teach you about a place. But the only thing that's relevant here is the scientists, is what the white scientists learned in a space like this. And anything that the indigenous people knew, well, it has to be corroborated by white history and white science. And in reality, like, if you think indigenous people are human people, um, then you should value the fact that what the scientific method is, is human beings making observations and hypothesis about how to interact with the biological environment, um, then we've been scientists in these places for thousands of years. We've seen what happens if you set a fire to move the game. We've seen what happens if you set a fire to manage this invasive plant population, all those things like we've, we've done all that. And so the real question is like, are we going to view what indigenous people in these spaces have done as a part of the continuum of human interaction here or not. And I think a lot of times the outdoor industry at, at no fault of their own, because it's just the societal conditioning has said, no, the story starts with the FKT. The story starts with the first ascent. The story starts with all these different things that, that I think like erase a long legacy of, of really valuable knowledge from places. Um, and, and I think that if we valued that knowledge more, we'd see a lot more indigenous people in leadership in these places. And we're, we're really lucky at the moment that the, in, it, the uh, Secretary of the Interior, uh, who's in charge of, you know, the Bureau of Land Management and lots and lots and lots of our public lands right now is an indigenous woman, uh, the head of the National Park Service is an indigenous man. Like, I think those things are awesome to have these tribal leaders like stepping into these roles now, but it makes you wonder like, why weren't we in charge of this for a long time? Like, isn't this how this should have always been? Like we, we came in and we started these systems um, and we put like rookies <laughs> at the top of the pyramid of controlling these places. And it was like, Oh, you could have chose someone who's like, literal language was formed by speaking about this specific mountain range. Like, I think they're going to know how to talk about it a little bit better, but we, we didn't have that understanding in the past. And so I think the biggest thing people can do now is to bring that understanding to the table um, and, and just consider all of indigenous history in a place as valuable and equal uh, to our history there as athletes and the history of white people and colonialism and whatever it might be and, and just understand like this is we're, we're human beings too and the knowledge we've had here for for however long and the stories we've told here for however long are, are as valid as anything else that you know someone from the outside could say this the storytelling element is an interesting one um because as you say so much of of the outdoor industry is wrapped up in uh epicness you know yeah. the way we feel epic is is it, if we take on this other the nature you know as we've discussed right. this other this thing that is other to us that is other to our sort of soft um humanity our the, the sort of vulnerable humanity um but i love the idea of of telling stories through a lens of of no this you are just in the place that humans have always been and you're just another person experiencing that way experiencing that that place and that doesn't mean that it's that it's any less exhilarating it doesn't mean that it's any less uh a significant feat of, of physical endurance or or mental fortitude or 
whatever it may be, there of course are inherent values in pushing yourself in the outdoors and and um, you know the, a whole a lot of what we think of when we tell the story of um, these adventures into the wilderness the wilderness which is so different from from ourselves a lot of what informs the romance of that still exists is still applicable to a story which is told as you say through a different lens of you're another person in a long history of human beings uh doing those same types of same types of things and uh interacting with that environment in in similar types of ways yeah and i think like that can still be so exciting like the fact that it's normal <laughs> doesn't make it less exciting or doesn't make it less dangerous or the stakes any less high. Mm. But I think it like brings in the true gravity of what it means to make decisions in these spaces. Mm. Cause it's like, dang, that's, that's what I feel as an indigenous person in these spaces is I, I often feel this feeling of like, wow, so many people, countless generations before me, had to do equally as scary of stuff as I'm doing right now and not die while doing it mm. in order for me to live. And I have to not die doing this cool, scary thing out here. I'm going to find a way to make it because then after me, more people are going to come and do similar things. Like it, I think it doesn't, I think that's something that gets lost sometimes between indigenous culture and Western cultures is like that individualism is like, yeah, that's cool. And, and so much of our, our storytelling right now is based on like individualism and, and there's a value to that individualism. But at the same time, on the flip side of that, like individualism is so elevated by its contribution to community. Um, and, and I think that's something that we could see a, a lot more of and to expand the sense of community to beyond just people. And be like, my, my community is the water. My community is mm. the peaks. My community is the trees that links that I followed up the ridge line to know how to get there safely. That's probably how one of the first people figured out how to move an avalanche terrain, right? Like, and realizing like, that's all community. And what if, if what I do is in service to that all being able to live, that's a really powerful time in, in, to be alive, right? Like the, we're, in this era of like, we get to choose right now as human beings through our own actions, like how much are, are we going to live on? And also like, there's other species at risk based on our decision-making. Like this is a really powerful time to just choose, like I'm, I'm gonna just live. I'm gonna make sure that other things can live. And that's maybe a braver choice than being like, oh, I'm gonna go do something that that is dangerous or could kill me or whatever. I think like, mm. I don't know. There's a lot of bravery in just choosing that that collective value of life right now. And it's the hardest thing to do almost within the context of a sort of um, success and financial obsessed culture. You know, it's the hardest, one of the hardest things that, that you can do is say, you know, I don't, I don't need this. Uh, it's enough for me to, to be alive and to be part of a functioning environment and to be um, uh, content. Contentment is is one of the hardest things to come by, I think. Yeah. Um, and that has to do, I'm sure, a lot with, um, you know, socioeconomic systems, the, the sort of the cultural, what we value, um or or the sort of um driving uh yeah driving values behind well let's just say it a capitalist economic system um yeah which which has its value and has its has its drawbacks as well for sure yeah yeah i mean i think that's that's one of the trickiest things when you're talking to brands and you're like oh i love the product you make right and that's made in the capitalist world and like i love my solomon skis that's where i ski on i don't want to ski on any other brand <laughs> like, mm, mm. those are what i like yeah. you know and i think there's a value to understanding like okay how do we keep those things how do we keep these these identities that we love collectively and then empower the things we do but then how do we put boundaries around like okay but i'm not compromising on water i'm not compromising on anything that's gonna 
melt my snowpack out too quick. And not just because I love to ski on it, but because what's that going to do to to the rivers down below? You know, like where we made the film last year, uh, it, it melted out a whole month quicker this year because of dust blowing in. Oh, whoa. And so the mountains there almost melted out. Whereas this time last year, like that's when we finished the film. Um, mm. It was a pretty stark contrast being up there again. And, and the reason why it melted out is because they've opened up all this more ranching down on the desert in, in Utah below that. And the animals step on the ground, kick up dust, and that dust blows up into the mountains and makes Whoa. the snow such that it doesn't reflect the light anymore. Instead, mm. it absorbs the light and it melts out drastically quicker. Well, we just also at the same time, this is like they're the first year that they're drastically amending uh, how the water flows in the Colorado River. Um, and they're basically Lake Powell would be dry right now. And that dam powers tons of places. Same with the Hoover Dam that's downstream from that. Um, yeah, and it's just this crazy thing of understanding like, okay, these are like really deeply connected issues and we got to have some some guardrails on how we do business because there's things that we love and we shouldn't have to give up all those things. But at the same time, like we shouldn't be doing it to the extent uh, that the rivers run dry, you know, and it's like, okay, maybe there's supposed to be skiers in the mountains and that's, that's something we determined we want to have as a value. But like there weren't cows in that desert before, <laughs> like maybe cows don't go in the desert. Maybe we got to have some rules about things like that. And so, yeah, I think it's just like bringing, bringing that fresh way of thinking and allowing all of us to have a space where it's like, okay, like how do we allow these, these, different sets of things that we love and our different ambitions and passions to help us understand like what's sacred and what we can't compromise on. And, and I think like you get a really powerful window uh, onto water um, through, through being, through being a skier through, you know, getting to have the process of making this film or watching this film or whatever it might be um, to realize like, okay, yeah. Like, it's awesome to have skiing, but I need, I need water more than I need skiing. You know, mm. I need water more than I need capitalism more than I need the insoles in my shoes, which are awesome and carbon negative, like any of those things. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, about the, the melt off and the impacts of, of ranching. And that's, that's gotta be the hardest, the hardest issue facing us is that just vast interconnectedness of everything that we don't that that is so impossible to see it's not impossible so difficult to see from from your from everybody has a, a perspective which is informed by their own interests basically yeah um and it's so difficult to see a bigger picture without someone putting it in front of you um and and it's so difficult for that even that bigger picture to be put in front of you and to, to have it be effective without actually seeing it in person. Um, yeah, yeah, it's wild. We talked to the to the um, water activists uh, Teal in our film, and that was one of her biggest things. Is like one of these simple things you don't think of. But when we talked about like the water crisis in the Southwest United States and the mm. ongoing drought and all those things, one of the craziest points that she left us with was like if people stopped having lawns in like places where you're not supposed to have a lawn like colorado southwestern colorado new mexico arizona where there's all these lawns and golf courses we we'd pretty much solve the water crisis that like the majority of our water is just getting poured on lawns so you could have this patch of green grass that like culturally we think we're supposed to have Mm. in a place where it just like it has no biological business growing there. there yeah yeah and it's like so if everybody in that that area just stopped having a lawn like the rivers would run again and we'd be fine but it's just wow. like nobody but when you go water your lawn you don't think of that either you're just like well i better water this or else it'll mm. be brown and my neighbors will judge me yeah like, wait you're not really allowed to like 
from 30,000 feet, you know, <laughs> collectively look at like, what is our decision making doing? Yeah, crazy. Wow, that's a fascinating, uh, fascinating stat. Yeah. So speaking of uh, watering the lawn, what's uh, what's in store for summer for you? Um, a lot of running this summer. Um, really stoked. I'm going to be doing uh, the Leadville Marathon in June up high here in Colorado. Um, yeah, which should be exciting. I'll be working uh, again. I'll be mentoring at Footprints Running Camp. Um in, in Silverton area, which is like we bring out college age students who have uh, projects in their community that are environmental or social sustainability projects and like a team of like professors and professional athletes and just all kinds of rad people. We mentor these kids for a week on how to bring their projects to life in their community. Awesome. Um, it's a pretty exciting thing. And then Will you, um, if you, you train for winter. Sorry, if you um, send me a link uh, to that, to the foot, footprints, did you say it was yeah, called? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, then we'll, yeah. we'll put that in the, in the show notes on the blog so people can check that out. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet project. Gaining, gaining a lot of steam. Uh, we did it for the first time last year, made a little film about it, and I'll, I'll send that over to you. Awesome. And so you're running mostly on the road, on your trail, or all trails for me. I all can't, trails. I can't run on the road. It's just like too repetitive for me running on the road. If I run for like 15 minutes on the road, I feel like it was three hours. Whereas I could go trail run for three hours, and it passes by like 15 minutes. So hmm. yeah, I'll be I'll be out on the trails for most of the summer. Great, and I'm sure that that gives a almost the flip side of the same perspective on how important water is. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, sounds like a good summer. Yeah. I'm really stoked for, for it. And also just to be even more prepared for next winter. I'm sure you know how it goes. But oh yeah. <laughs> each summer I'm, I'm just dreaming of winter. Uh, even if I love all the running. Cool. Connor. Well, is there anything else that you want to touch on or discuss before we go? No, I think that's it. That's that's great. Great. Well, thanks very much uh, for joining me and for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reaching out to do this, Paul. I appreciate it.